Hello, and thank you for listening to this recording of Business Forward's conference call featuring David Foster. David Foster is currently a distinguished associate with the Energy Futures Initiative and is the former Senior Advisor for Industrial and Economic Policy at the U.S. Department of Energy. David also serves on the boards of Kaiser Aluminum and Evros North America. To view slides from the webinar or to download the U.S. Energy and Employment Report, visit bit.ly slash energyjobswebinar. Again, that's bit.ly slash energyjobswebinar, all one word, all lowercase. The first voice you will hear is David Foster. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be joining you today with the opportunity to uh, give you a brief overview of the 2018 U.S. Energy and Employment Report. Uh, next slide. The uh, U.S. Energy and Employment Report was a project that was begun when I was working at the Department of Energy three years ago. And it was a national supplemental survey uh, that tracks the existing Bureau of Labor Statistics quarterly census on employment and wages data. Now, for those of you who follow employment data, the QCW is the U.S. government gold standard uh, on what is happening in employment labor markets throughout the country. It's compiled from the unemployment records that are collected at the state level and then aggregated by the federal government across over 1,000 industrial sectors using something called the North American Industrial Classification System. And it's in this way that we know how many people are working in the utility industry, how many people are working in construction, what kinds of occupations they're doing. So when you want to understand part of the labor market in a deeper manner, uh, the current way of doing that is through administering what's known as a supplemental survey or a representative sample of employers who are asked questions, uh, in our case by phone and internet, and you then integrate those results with the QCW data. So this is not an entirely brand new system uh, for understanding employment. It's a way of digging into and understanding the existing data uh, in a deeper fashion. When we were at the Department of Energy, uh, our supplemental survey was approved both by the Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics and by the Energy Information Administration, the data experts at the Department of Energy. So what the U.S. Energy and Employment Report does is analyze four sectors of the labor market, electric power generation and fuels production, electric power and fuels transmission, distribution, and storage, energy efficiency, something that was never done before, and motor vehicles were analyzed by fuel type. Next slide. Uh, but this is much more than simply a counting of jobs and an assignment of numbers. Uh, what we actually do is analyze employment in 53 different energy, energy efficiency, and motor vehicle technologies that are located in 186 of those occupational codes that I mentioned on the previous slide. And then in addition to employment numbers, we also ask employers what their hiring expectations are for the next 12 months. We ask them about their hiring difficulty by technology and industrial classification in those areas. We identify high demand jobs and skills gaps. We look at the workforce demographics by race, ethnicity, gender, and veteran status. And we provide that data uh, on very specific geographic levels, not just the national level, but by state, county, congressional, and legislative districts. Next slide. Why do we do this? It's because in the energy sector, and I don't think this is just unique to the energy sector, 
that business models have evolved over the years so that the system that was uh, designed under the BLS QCEW system uh, no longer gives you a complete picture of what's going on in employment and labor markets. Uh, first and foremost, business activities that are essential to the operation of these traditional energy companies uh, end up getting classified in other industrial sectors. That's because business models have changed. So for example, 30 years ago, uh, the average nuclear power plant had full-time maintenance employees who were employees of the nuclear utility. Today, many of those maintenance employees work for outside contractors and under the classification system are no longer counted as utility employees, even though they're on the job site uh, 40 hours a week. Uh, the same thing has happened in utilities generally, where in-house construction crews have given way to uh, outside contracted maintenance crews. Uh, this is much clearer in renewable energy uh, for those of you who are familiar with it because the business model uh, for renewable energy projects such as wind or utility scale solar are very different from what exists for a traditional power plant. Consequently, a residential photovoltaic installer, for instance, is classified either as a construction electrician or a roofer under the QCEW system and you would never know they had anything to do with energy. Uh, that follows throughout the wind development uh, industry, for instance. And then finally, our big concern was that energy efficiency really has no place whatsoever in the BLS QCEW system. So you can't tell if an employee is really focused 100% of their time on energy efficiency or if they're simply doing uh, a normal construction job that might be installing a 50-year-old piece of equipment. So that was the motivation behind what we did. Next uh, slide. Just to give you a sense of why this resulted in such serious undercounting, uh, we did this slide to show you uh, a year ago the uh, U.S. employment uh, report that we put out uh, on a national basis for electric power generation. You can see that if you looked up under the QCW for the number of people who were employed doing fossil fuel electric generation in utilities, that number was 92,817. But when you examined all the serious undercounting that went on, that number was actually double. When you add in all those outside construction workers that are doing the work, a uh, variety of other uh, occupational activities. In nuclear, it was about a 50% undercounting. In wind, you can see it was a very serious uh, 16 or 17% uh, uh, time undercounting. And in solar, of course, it was the worst of all that the QCW figures only counted 2,700 people working in the solar electric generation industry at all. If you take this over and look at the chart on the right at what was happening at the state level, we use New York as an example, uh, you can see that the same kind of undercounting exists there as well. Uh, if you look at solar, I like to joke with my acquaintances at NYSERDA that the New York uh, agency that deals with renewable energy development, uh, why would they care if there were only 61 solar jobs in the state of New York after all the work they had done trying to build up the solar industry? Well, in fact, there are over 12,000, so it's a substantial contributor to New York's economy. Uh, so that's why we cared about uh, devising this deeper look at what's going on in the energy and energy efficiency labor force. Next slide. 
So let's get to what some of the top line resort results were for the 2018 U.S. Energy and Employment Report, which was released about three weeks ago and is based on data that we collected in the fourth quarter of 2017. In the four sectors of the economy that we examined, uh, there were 162,000 new jobs created. That's a faster pace than the economy produced jobs as a whole, and you can see in the, in the uh, chart on the left uh, how each of those four sectors increased jobs slightly. Uh, the traditional energy, which are the first two columns, uh, added 100, uh, along with energy efficiency, added 133,000 jobs in 2017. Uh, of those three sectors, energy efficiency led the way, adding uh, slightly over half of those jobs, 67,000 uh, last year. Uh, of other interesting highlights, natural gas, electric generation added 19,000 new jobs. Overall, we found that the hiring difficulty in these four sectors declined slightly to 70% uh, of all employers expressing difficulty in new hiring. Uh, that's down from 73% the year before. But it's very important to note that in the key growth sectors, such as energy efficiency, construction job, hiring difficulty actually got worse, climbing to over 83% of employers uh, saying it was difficult or very difficult to hire new employees that had the skills they needed. Overall, the traditional energy and energy efficiency employers predict 6.5% employment growth rate for this year, current year we're in, 2018. Uh, we also noted that solar jobs declined for the first time since 2010, but among other uh, renewable or low-carbon energy sources, uh, wind, combined heat and power, biomass generation, geothermal, low-impact hydro, all of those grow. And then in some ways another uh, compelling uh, finding of the study was that while the motor vehicle industry overall added 29,000 new jobs, the alternative fuel vehicle jobs actually declined by almost 40,000 or 15%. And that was in spite of the fact that there was a 25% increase in the sales of hybrid, plug-in, and electric vehicles in the United States. So a very uh, uh, curious and, and uh, somewhat disturbing uh, factor that uh, we here in the U.S. Uh, are losing out on our manufacturing of a product that's in ever greater demand. Next slide. So to dig into a few of these areas in a little more detail, especially uh, dealing with uh, clean energy and energy efficiency, uh, this chart shows uh, some of the combined results of what happened in electric power generation and fuels production from a total jobs perspective. Uh, natural gas, as I mentioned, generation added 19,000 jobs, CHP, uh, grew very significantly, adding 9,000 jobs for a 51% growth rate. Same with biomass generation, adding 8,000 jobs at a 55% growth rate. Uh, wind, very solid, 5,000, 6% uh, growth rate. Uh, and you can see hydro, uh, coal generation was uh, virtually unchanged, number of jobs there. Uh, while solar lost uh, 24,000 jobs for 6%. But important to note, that two-thirds of that job loss took place in only two states, California and Massachusetts. Uh, nuclear continued to lose a few jobs, 3,400, uh, while oil, coal, and gas fuels uh, grew at very small rates uh, from a tenth to one and a half percent. 
Uh, and among uh, lower carbon fuels, corn ethanol added 6,000 jobs or grew by 12%. Next slide. Uh, for those of you who are particularly interested in low carbon emissions energy, it was interesting to note that the mix between those uh, jobs in low carbon emissions versus those in fossil fuel uh, production was virtually unchanged. At 800,000 Americans employed in low carbon, about 1.1 uh, in fossil fuels. So the numbers overall didn't change, but the mix changed uh, significantly in some respects, as you can see from this chart, as solar declined, uh, nuclear declined, but others rose, corn ethanol rose, but then uh, some biofuels decreased. Next slide. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the competition between states, uh, it's always a little interesting to see where the most jobs are, are located. Uh, at EFI, we like to say this is a very purple slide because there's no uh, political delineation between who's on top and, and who's farther down. Uh, it's quite a mix of where the resources are and where uh, the function of both state and tax policy uh, has helped drive the growth of these jobs. Uh, next slide. So jump into energy efficiency with a little more detail uh, because no other study on labor markets in the country really tries to examine what's going on with energy efficiency. Uh, so we found that two and a quarter million people work in whole or part with energy efficiency technologies, a net increase uh, year over year of 67,000. Uh, of these, uh, almost 1.3 million are in construction, but that represents a decline year over year of almost 100,000 jobs. It's interesting to note that the intensity, however, of energy efficiency construction businesses has kept increasing at a really significant pace. So 80.3 of construction employers now report that their employees are spending a majority of their time working in these technologies up 6.5% from last year. As a result, that means that uh, 1,024,000 construction employees now spend a majority of their time on energy efficiency technologies. That's an increase year over year of 6,500. So while the number of employees working in construction on these technologies declined, the amount of time they're spending on it uh, went way up. Uh, and we'll say more about why did these uh, jobs decrease in a minute. Uh, in other parts of energy efficiency, those involved in the business and professional services increased by 63,000. And importantly to note that those involved in the manufacture of Energy Star products up to 315,000 also increased by 26,000 last year. Next slide. So it's interesting to see where the energy efficiency employment is by industry sector. You can see that a majority of it is in construction, uh, but there are significant contributions being made in manufacturing, in wholesale trade distribution, uh, and of course, uh, almost a half million in professional and business services that is a part of the energy efficiency sector. Next slide. We also break down energy efficiency by specific technologies. So uh, whether it's the people who are uh, doing energy efficiency work, even though they work for a traditional HVAC company, uh, uh, highly efficient lighting, building materials, Energy Star appliances, we break all of that down and we break it down by state and by uh, smaller geographic areas 
so that if you're at a at a state level or a municipal level and you really want to understand what's going on in energy efficiency, you really want to understand how your utility program is impacting the growth of jobs in this area, that's the kind of detailed analysis this data can provide you. Next slide. Um, and then we uh, look at expected employment growth. Uh, this is for 2018 across each of those industry sectors. And you can see just how robust construction employers see uh, hiring in energy employment, uh, energy efficiency employment. Uh, 10.5% uh, manufacturing growth. Employers see this energy efficiency uh, as a real growth uh, center for manufacturing in the economy. Again, this is important distinctions to look at. Next slide. Uh, this, I think, gives you a sense of hiring difficulty and just how difficult it is for construction employers to hire employees with the skills to do energy efficiency work. And that's why, uh, in my, my uh, uh, belief, is that the hiring declined in that section of the industry is because in a time of such high employment and the growth of construction generally, finding people with the skills to do energy efficiency work has become increasingly difficult. And so that's something in all our presentations we want to flag for the audience and especially for people who are involved in uh, workforce development issues at the state and local level, just how critical it is uh, that people learn the skills uh, to respond to these jobs that are in such high demand. Employers expecting an almost 11% growth rate next year and yet experiencing extremely high hiring difficulty. Uh, next slide. Uh, this is a look into the future we're living already in 2018. Uh, I focused in on this slide on the clean energy technologies to see what employers were predicting. So it's interesting to note that on the generation side, uh, overall expectations of 8% growth rate, solar, which experienced this decline in 2017, employers are still bullish, expecting uh, solar employment to increase by 5% this year. And you can see uh, good growth rates predicted in other low emission generation technologies. Uh, corn ethanol, expecting some continued growth. Uh, Plug-in hybrids and electrics, uh, in spite of the heavy competition from European and Japanese vehicles, expecting employment growth. I've mentioned energy efficiency and the growth that's anticipated uh, in two of those sectors. And then just to add uh, something we didn't have time to talk about much, energy infrastructure. In some of the clean parts of transmission, storage, and distribution, you can see the growth rate projected for microgrids, smart grids, battery storage, and pumped hydro. Uh, and that's uh, the conclusion of the presentation. A lot of data, but it's just a tiny fraction of what's available. Uh, so if you want to download the report and download the state summary charts, go to usenergyjobs.org. It's all available there. And if any of you are interested in inquiring more about the information that's available or interested in custom reports, uh, you can contact the Energy Futures Initiative. And with that, I'll kick it back over to you for any questions. Great. Uh, thanks, David. That was extremely helpful. Uh, for everybody on the phone, so you know, we'll send up a follow-up email that provides a link both to this presentation and any of the resources that David mentioned today. As a reminder, we're ready to take your questions now. So if you'd like to ask a question or have a comment, please press 1 on your telephone keypad or you can email your question to us. 
at info at businessfwb.org. Uh, to start things off, we're going to start with a couple email questions while we wait for the queue to fill. Um, David, you mentioned a drop in alternative fuel vehicles. Uh, could this have something to do with U.S. steel getting more expensive? No, because, uh, you know, this all uh, happened in calendar year 2017. Uh, so it was before uh, the announcement of uh, steel and aluminum tariffs. And what, uh, you know, what I uh, dug into the issue a little bit more to try to understand uh, why did the sales of these vehicles go up so high, um, and they increased by 25% uh, year over year, I think from roughly uh, 150,000 to 195,000, so a big increase in consumer demand. Uh, but what we saw was a drop in the purchase of U.S. manufactured hybrids. We saw an increase in the purchase of U.S. manufactured all-electrics. Uh, that was driven in part by the Chevy Bolt uh, coming onto the market in early 2017 for the first time and uh, took uh, some of the market share away from U.S. produced hybrids. But then you saw the very popular plug-in Prius coming in from Japan, and you saw BMW in particular add uh, some new vehicles uh, to the imports that they manufactured in Europe and sell in the United States. So this increase in sales from European imports and uh, Japan was what really drove the decline in uh, jobs in the alternative fuel vehicle side of, of uh, our motor vehicles industry. So it just underscores for me, let's not underestimate the interest that the American consumer has in plug-ins and electric vehicles because it's a rapidly growing market and it's not something we want to be shut out of, especially when it's growing all over the world at, at uh, leaps and bounds. As you think about, um, this is a question from Marsha Peterman in Eugene, Oregon. As you think about, uh, and I think it's a good follow-up here, as you think about uh, what's going to happen next year and the year after that, both in terms of consumer demand and whether or not that's for clean energy vehicles or electric vehicles or for solar and wind power, do you think that that will have an impact on uh, clean energy jobs? And are there certain public policies right now that you think might affect that, either improve it or uh, make that job growth less likely? Mm -hmm. Well, um, as we as we look at any of these, I think there are a number of factors, uh, some of which start with basic uh, market demand uh, is certainly driving the way the market behaves. Uh, and so let's never forget that because uh, people want certain kinds of products. Uh, they uh, have with them also tax policy behind them. And so the understanding of how uh, tax credits for renewable energy had a very profound uh, effect on the growth of both wind and solar. I think there was some hesitation uh, during the early part of last year when uh, people weren't certain whether or not uh, a tax reform would include doing away with wind and uh, solar tax credits. It didn't, and consequently, uh, previous work that we had done at the Department of Energy showed that the most profound driver on the growth of renewable energy in the U.S. economy uh, was the, the tax credits that stood in place uh, more than virtually any other uh, issue. 
but there certainly are a lot of things at the state level that continue to drive policy, whether it's uh, increased renewable energy standards or energy efficiency standards. Uh, the mere fact that utilities, I think, see a great value in the implementation of energy efficiency measures and many, many utilities and public utility commissions uh, take part in and mandate the uh, use of those products. So I think all of those things uh, drive policy together, and we happen to be living in a very dynamic time in which all of these drivers interact with each other. And while they can be frustrating from a business perspective sometime, and certainly that's been uh, you know, my own uh, experience as a member of a corporate uh, board, as well as the interactions uh, we've had with the private sector, it's frustrating not to have clearly delineated uh, national energy policy. Nonetheless, these drivers are moving us inexorably in the, in the direction we're headed right now. Um, uh, great, thank you. Um, uh, let's see, should we move on to, do we have a live question that you wanted to move on to? Okay, we'll, uh, we'll get that in the queue next. Um, one more email question, um, and this, is, this seems like it might be straightforward. Michelle Harrison of Knoxville, Tennessee said, but uh, she's asking, if we invest more in green jobs, how will that affect electricity prices? Well, I think we've reached a, 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 a new point in the uh, production of electricity in the United States where in terms of new generation, uh, certainly wind is uh, frequently the cheapest form of electricity uh, to put onto the grid. Uh, certainly utility scale solar uh, has likewise dropped uh, way down so that it likewise is a competitive form of producing electricity. Uh, I think the investments that we've made in technology to, uh, investment continue to be one of the wisest things we can do in the U.S. in terms of uh, stabilizing and keeping energy prices uh, low uh, and or on a trajectory to go even lower. Uh, so I don't see green energy as necessarily an expense proposition, uh, but I do think we have to pay attention to how we balance uh, the consumer need for energy across a wide variety of kinds of consumers uh, so that we're delivering uh, reliable, safe, affordable uh, energy and electricity to our consumers in a way that's consistent with the broader uh, views of the U.S. economy. Uh, so this is definitely a balancing act that needs to be done, but nothing I see is uh, telling me that the drive toward low-carbon energy can't be done uh, consistently with affordable rates. Thanks. Um, we are ready for some live questions now. We're going to start with Annette Forrester. Annette, your line should be open. Please introduce yourself with your business and where you're calling from and go ahead and share your question or comment. Annette? Okay, um, we will move on to a couple more emailed questions here. I have a question from Vic Bell, um, and this is probably David drawing on some of your experience back when you were at the Department of Energy, and he's asking for some government advice. Um, and if you don't know, uh, or we can always uh, follow up with Vic later, but he writes, I'm in the process of responding to an FOA on solar research and workforce development for a vocational school in Detroit, and my initial paper concept was discouraged from a false submission. Uh, is there a way to write a successful paper at this point with this administration? 
or should I apply for other federal assistance? Do you have any suggestions? Uh, gee, I really am not in a position to be able to comment on uh, what the new administration uh, is doing in regards to program implementation. Uh, I wish I could, but I would just be guessing. So I think it's best that uh, you try to work through the, the systems and advice that's in place. Great, thank you. Our next question, we do have another live question. James Bellamy. James, your line should be open. Go ahead and introduce yourself with your business and where you're calling from and share your question. Hmm. James? Okay, well, we will uh, yes. Oh, Go ahead. Oh, is that James? Yes, I'm here. Oh, go ahead and ask your question. The, the question is, is I'm seeing a lot of regular same old, same old solar, battery, nuclear, and all that. What else is out there that's brand new that will excel the rates of the percentage of energy in jobs? Is there anything else out there? Um, well, if you're asking about uh, new technologies, uh, absolutely there are, are uh, new technologies that are being uh, developed all the time and for instance when I was at the Department of Energy one of the most interesting uh, programs that was run was uh, known as ARPA-E the Advanced Research uh, Project uh, Energy and they were a grants program to try to help new technologies get into the initial uh, testing phase so that you could uh, work to uh, then get those new technologies into the deployment stage where they would actually start producing jobs. So these tended to be uh, one to three year grants in the range of uh, 500000 to uh, $2 million a year. And they would help some very, very interesting technologies such as uh, putting uh, wind turbines up, inside, up in the air uh, where they would actually be tethered free from uh, these massive steel towers that we currently have. Uh, likewise, there were certain kinds of tidal energy uh, technologies that were being tested and a range of uh, extremely interesting things. Uh, for those who were interested in uh, climate change and the business uh, opportunities associated with carbon management. There were likewise technologies on how you uh, draw carbon uh, out of the atmosphere, whether by uh, biologic means or chemical means. Uh, so there are all kinds of very interesting technologies at play uh, to reduce uh, carbon emissions, to try to increase uh, the kinds of um, uh, energy production that can go on. And tracking the potential in those, I think, is one of the very interesting things that we should be hoping our governments do. So, for instance, I was reading a, a paper that was produced in, in Norway by the Norwegian uh, Business Association, government, and some other uh, NGOs, trying to examine what the job potential of carbon capture sequestration from industrial sources would be for the country of Norway. Uh, and that essentially means taking the industrial emissions that are produced uh, by manufacturing, uh, trapping those through a variety of different technologies, and then storing the carbon that's captured, the carbon dioxide, uh, 
in underground North Sea uh, 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 caverns. And the conclusion of this government study was that Norway had the potential of creating 30,000 uh, new jobs by the widespread deployment of this technology, uh, which their government had deemed was a, a critical piece of trying to reach the two-degree uh, Celsius target of, of reducing carbon emissions in Europe as part of the, the global effort to do that. So I think it's extremely helpful when uh, governments and, and business working together can understand the economic impacts and the opportunities that come with taking on these significant environmental challenges. Uh, because something that produces 30,000 jobs and leaves us with a cleaner atmosphere is a very popular technology. I don't care if it's in a Nordic country like Norway or if it's in, um, if it's in Oklahoma in the United States. That's the sort of stuff that we want to talk about. Great, thanks. We've got time for about two more questions. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question live, press one. I'm going to move to another, uh, one more email question here. David, can you, this is from um, Irving Guerrero in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Can you talk about the distinction between the jobs and the energy, between the energy efficiency jobs in manufacturing and those in construction that you uh, delineated between in the presentation? Sure. Um, so an energy efficiency job in manufacturing um, is the person who gets up every day, goes to work in a factory, and puts together and assembles uh, an Energy Star air conditioner or a uh, high-efficiency uh, furnace for either a residence or a uh, uh, commercial building. Uh, and by Energy Star, that's the rating system that the EPA has had in place for a number of decades and really is the global gold standard for how you rate uh, products, appliances, uh, a variety of other uh, pieces of equipment. And so the 315,000 jobs that we identified of Americans who are getting up and going into those factories every day making those Energy Star appliances uh, you know, those are some of the, the most high-demand products in the world today and something that everyone around, around the world uh, looks to as how uh, manufactured goods ought to be made today. The energy efficiency construction worker uh, is the sheet metal worker who takes that HVAC, high-efficiency Energy Star HVAC system and installs it in a commercial building or he's the HVAC technician who puts it into your basement and installs it so that uh, you're starting to greatly reduce the energy cost to heat or air condition your home. So the difference is between the people who are building the product and the people who are installing the product. Now, it's, it goes into the construction side is a lot more than that, and there are a lot more technologies than, than just the Energy Star products that help to contribute to energy efficiency in a building, but that's it in, in essence. Uh, great, thank you. And I think this is a good question to end things on and a good follow-up to that question. This is from Scott Cole from South Bend, Indiana. And he writes, what is the training necessary to fill these energy efficiency jobs that are going unfilled? And uh, what can business leaders do to help with that? Uh, well, that's a great question and something that uh, I hope everybody on the webinar and a lot of other people are spending some time uh, thinking about. Uh, because in one of my uh, earlier jobs, I, was, I worked on trying to help uh, implement industrial energy efficiency programs, and one of the engineers who worked for us uh, was very frustrated because he said that 
uh, all the years that he had worked on putting uh, energy efficient pieces of equipment into manufacturing companies, he would come back a year or two years later and find that 25% of the efficiency was not being realized because the employees had never been trained on how to run the equipment uh, uh, and service it properly in the first place. So the skills that are necessary, uh, I think, are the kinds of things that need to be taught uh, and, and are taught best, I believe, in structured apprenticeship programs. There's really nothing uh, quite as good as the kinds of apprenticeship programs, uh, particularly that uh, building and construction trade unions run all over the country. I think they spend roughly $4 billion a year in concert with their employers and apprentices coming in to learn those trades, whether it's uh, being a sheet metal worker or a plumber and pipe fitter or an electrician. Uh, that those are the kinds of skills that take time to learn. Uh, they need to be trained by employers who understand the seriousness about the benefits of the actual equipment they're learning on. And so that kind of a, a uh, learn while you earn program has undoubtedly been the most successful. Uh, so when I was at the Department of Energy, we actually set up an interagency effort that brought together uh, the five federal agencies that uh, on the one hand, like the Department of Energy understood the technologies, on the other hand, like the Department of Labor that helped fund programs in community colleges and learning institutions around the country, and the Department of Education that helped develop curriculum. And we were very focused uh, that this was a big problem that America needed to work on a coordinated level from the top of the federal government down to the work, uh, workforce investment boards, to the local school boards, so that we had a seamless system uh, that got people interested in these jobs in high school, uh, showed them where and how to get the training they needed, whether it was in a community college or a union apprenticeship program when they, when they left school, uh, so that we had a steady flow of uh, talent coming into uh, what are some of the best jobs in America, provide you with a lifetime of opportunity, earning good wages, and supporting your family. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, David, thank you so much for going through this presentation and for answering these questions so carefully. We appreciate your time, and thanks to all the business leaders who were able to join us and take time out of what we know are your busy work schedules. Everyone who participated in the call, please watch your email for a quick survey from us. That'll also, that email will also include a recording of today's call. We always appreciate your feedback so that we can continue to improve our programming. So uh, thanks again to everybody. Have a good afternoon. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you. That'll do it for us here at Business Forward. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Doe Kashatiru for use of their song, Destination Not Specific, which is used under a Creative Commons license. You can hear more Creative Commons music at dig.ccmixter.org. Would you like to hear the next call live? Go ahead and sign up at businessfwd.org. Thanks so much.